Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 261 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast, or episode 2 of 2020. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man some call the guy that doesn't answer his text for several days, only to blame it on Sprint, Chris Roche. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Robin. How's things? Uh, they're lovely. Uh We've been uh, playing a little bit of phone tag, and it's been a little bit delayed, but hey, we're here, and that's the important bit. How how have you been? Um, Yeah, surviving lockdown with my wife and two children. How about you? Surviving (laughs) lockdown with my wife, child, dog, and (laughs) (laughs) father-in-law. Oh, we've gained the rabbit during lockdown. That was the exciting news of the Roche household. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) In celebration of us meeting again, I have cracked a bottle of Pinot Gris and am and sipping on it as we speak. It is lovely. Well, that sounds very civilized. I uh, had a glass with dinner and I'm now drinking coffee. So, <laughs> sad, sad state of affairs. Yes, well, it's funny. There's not been a single race this year, and yet... There's a lot to talk about in Formula One. So <laughs> let's just jump into it. I think uh, we, uh, we just have to start with Sebastian Vettel will not be racing with Ferrari after 2020. Yeah, that's right. They couldn't. Uh, they were miles apart, it seems, on on a new deal. And so they've gone their separate ways. And uh, as we speak, uh, Seb doesn't have a drive for 21. His seat has been occupied by a young Spaniard. No, no, not Fernando. He's not back in a Ferrari. It's Carlos Sainz. He's also Senior. not that young. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, yeah, so Saints is taking Vettel's spot alongside Charles, who who becomes the team leader in his in, in what will be his third year at Ferrari. So it's a lot, a lot resting on his shoulders already. And then Daniel Ricciardo moving to McLaren. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I would have thought Danny Rick would have been the more obvious choice to replace Vettel, honestly. That would have been an incredible partnership, uh, Daniel and uh, Charles. Uh, But Ferrari appeared to have decided that Charles is the man and they wanted a reliable number two or so I've been reading. Yeah, which is is fascinating to me. And I think that Carlos Sainz is going to be very happy to uh, show that number two status isn't quite right for him. I'm sure that's what his mindset is. I just don't see Carlos Sainz playing a Rubens Barrichello role in this situation. No, I don't either. (laughs) I see him trying to grasp this opportunity with both hands. And, you know, lest we forget, he, uh, he was very evenly matched with Max when they were both driving for STR. And, uh, you know, he's been bounced around a little bit, but I think he's still highly rated. He did a, he did a good job for McLaren last season. Um, so, yeah, I, I would have thought he'll, he'll be very competitive. But I still personally would have gone for Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, but I mean, I think clearly Daniel Ricciardo would not have accepted any kind of number two status. My guess is that they felt that in Charles Leclerc, they had something that they could mold into the type of driver and product they wanted. Whereas with Daniel Ricciardo, he would have been more established in his ways and there'd be more Ferrari melding to him as opposed to the other way around. That's just a guess, ultimately. But that's where I think they've got a lot invested in Charles Leclerc. I think they see a lot of potential in him and they just want to like put all their energy into that. Well, we'll see if it pays off. I have my doubts about that strategy, but uh, Daniel's move to McLaren... I mean, the love affair with Renault didn't last long, did it? And uh, he's, um, you know, he's betting on McLaren's recent up, upswing continuing and with uh, Mercedes power in 21. Um, so, yeah, I'm not uh, convinced they'll give him a race winning car in 21, but we'll see. They do seem to be going in the right direction, but whether they'll have caught up by then is questionable. Yeah, I agree. Yet, you know, I think it's less of hope from McLaren and more of frustration with Renault. Renault wasn't, they were being cautious with what they were saying, but man, they were mired pretty deep in the mid pack really. And I think more importantly, they were not showing progress throughout last season. Uh, They weren't, 
they weren't starting like say eighth quickest and finishing fourth quickest. Uh, you know, they seem to be kind of waffling around in the mid pack, and to me, that was as troubling a sign as anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and but they they now have a vacant seat for twenty one. So it could be Seb, it could be Fernando, it could be somebody else. Who do you think is going to fill it? Oh man, that would be fascinating if it was Alonso again. I don't know. I I really I've just maybe it's nine weeks, eight weeks of quarantine. I'm completely out of energy to even guess. I think think that Sebastian Vettel is... I I think we should talk about Vettel a little bit because I have a feeling, no, he will not go with Renault. I have a feeling Vettel is done with Formula One. I get the sense that pride is just getting in the way and... He just wants to be the top dog in a top de- team, and maybe that's in endurance, you know, world endurance championship or something. Yeah, I, I, I have that same sense that he's probably done. So this could be his, whatever season we get this year will be his farewell tour, and he'll ride off into the sunset. I mean, you know, he's had a, a, a bumpy few years, but he is still a four-time world champion third on the all-time win list it's not a bad record and if there's not really any chance of another world championship anytime soon I you know I could uh, empathize with him deciding to spend more time with his family and do a little bit of fun racing on the side so um, yeah I can't see him go to Renault honestly I'd be very surprised if he makes that move uh, Fernando though is claiming his his deals almost almost done and dusted for 21 so who knows what he's doing it could be midget racing <laughs> <laughs> What do you think was the real uh, cause of Vettel's not retaining with Ferrari? Do you think it was money or do you think it was status? And, I mean, I already know what I think, but I want to hear your opinion first. Well, I suspect um, Ferrari were looking to pay him less money and he didn't want to take a pay cut. And, uh, um, you know, that's a lot of drivers, you know, look at the pecking order in, in, in the Formula One rankings by how much they're paid. And so obviously Lewis is, is top dog, but then, you know, Seb would rightly claim he's got more world championships than anyone else on the grid, so he should be the second highest paid. But, you know, he got outperformed by Charles last season and Ferrari probably thought they could save a, a dollar or two. Um, so probably Seb rejected that. And he probably wanted, if not equal status, you know, number one status again. And I, I can't see why Ferrari... <laughs> Oh my lord! Why, Ferrari, bless you! Why would Ferrari would want to give that to him? Um, you know, seeing again as he he made some he's made a series of basic errors over the last three seasons, hasn't he? So exactly. So yeah, I think it's both of those factors. Quick, um, quick, dis- uh, quick digression here. I've been sneezing pretty consistently for the past four months. Do not worry, I am okay. Um, honestly, I think this was a good move for both parties because Sebastian Vettel signed with Ferrari for 2015 with very high hopes. It was very clear from a lot of different sides that he wanted to emulate Michael Schumacher. It became very clear early on that he was not going to do that. And I think that he had his best chance. He had his best chances to do this and to show, uh, to show real promise and when the team made errors, uh, he didn't he didn't maximize what he could do. And when he made errors, and he made plenty of errors on his own, is what I'm getting at. And I think that to just continue to try harder would have just mired him and uh, tarnished his reputation further. And he can still walk away with his head reasonably high, just as you said, four world championships an excellent number of wins and pole positions and uh, and he can still go to a Toyota, a Porsche, a whatever in World Endurance Championship and still be very highly sought after. It is quite a remarkable decline though, isn't it? I mean, in 13, he'd, he'd won his fourth World Championship. He was very young. And, um, you know, it appeared he yeah, had what, the world 25? of his feet. Yeah, and... 
and you know you had the snipers out there I mean particularly Alonso and Hamilton who constantly sort of belittled him and said well you know we could have won the title in that car too it wasn't such a mean feat and then you know he got toasted by Daniel in 14 had to had to run off to Ferrari and really hasn't had a good I mean, can you imagine any sort of standout races? How many how many standout races performances can you think of during his time at Ferrari? There aren't that many. No. I mean, okay, it, it came under a period of Mercedes domination, but still, you know, it wasn't like he achieved the some of the great victories despite the car that Alonso was able to achieve at Ferrari. Yes, um, exactly right. So yeah, it's it's. It's an interesting record. It'll be, it'll be uh, if he does retire. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't think, I don't think he's going to ever rank that high in the all-time driver rankings because of because of everything that's happened since his fourth world world championship. Quite honestly. Yeah. No. Should, I, should have retired I, then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have to agree with you. Yep. There's no argument there, and I think that. He he still has the ability to do great things in a race car, and it'll be interesting to see what choices he makes going forward in the future. Yeah, I mean, isn't it going to be, you know, he's either going to emulate Alonso, if he, if he leaves for Formula One, he's either going to emulate Alonso and try and go and win Le Mans or the Indy 500 or something like that. But I, that seems to be a particular Alonso fetish. Or he could be more like Jensen Button, which is you just go and do something kind of fun and get on with the rest of your life. I see, I see Seb more in that that category, honestly. Yeah, I, 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 very low chances of Sebastian Vettel being an IndyCar, personally. I, I that I just don't see that happening. I don't see him adapting to ovals at all, and I don't see him. I again, this is where that. The pride comes in. I just, I think he would consider that too much of a demotion. And he's wrong, of course, uh, being the American here. That's proud, but myself. But uh, he, uh, you know, we'll see what comes from the future. Obviously, the fact that this happened proves that uh, the world is still plenty unpredictable for us. So, uh, Lord knows, maybe he'll start his own race series. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll go into Formula E and win four more championships. Uh, there you go. Yeah, maybe he'll become. Maybe he'll start an equestrian team and uh, go at the Kentucky Derby. Who knows? So, are we uh, are we on the full countdown clock to uh, the fifth of July when we might actually have an F one race again, despite not having any orange clad spectators? Or he, he spectators. I I just I have I have I have zero faith in that right now. I'm I'm really I I'm going to wait till the race happens, and when it happens, and I watch it on television, I'll say yes, okay, the season has started. Until then, even if the teams arrive at the track, I'm still not going to believe it. But what, so what do you think? So the the plan is right. They'll run two races at the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Um, so on the 5th and 12th of July, and then they'll go to Silverstone and run two races there, 19th and 26th. And then they'll they'll do a little bit of a European uh, season, and then they'll head off around the world. Um, what do you think about the idea of running back-to-back races at the same track? I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that's going to work that well. I mean, some racing is better than no racing, even if it's carbon copy. But, you know... Um, it just seems like you could just let's say we have one particular team dominating on on that one race weekend you're just going to have that absolutely again aren't you seven days later is that really going to be what we all want to watch after missing out for the last four months or three months yeah no I totally agree the you know the only time I see double header races is in feeder series when I raced uh, the Skip Barber uh, Do- Formula Dodge National Championship, we did double headers. We did 14 races at seven events. Uh, FF 2000, the Formula Ford Championship, um, they do that. You know, things like that. Once you get to 
NASCAR, IMSA, IndyCar, it's not done that way. And to me, yes, it's special circumstances, but to me, this is uh, reaching a little too far. And I think it's a little bit of a desperate move to have enough races for it to be considered a season. And it was a bit short-sighted, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with a 15, 16 race season. I mean, that's how it used to be back in the day, right? So, I mean, if you go back even further, uh, they used to have seven or eight Grand Prix count towards the World Championship. So, um, you know, the days of, of requiring 20 plus races, I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be too fussed if, if we fall a little shy of that. But I don't want it to turn into some sort of Mickey Mouse uh, effort where... You know, it's it's too repetitive. We see the same results, and and it's not interesting. I mean, part of the allure of Formula One is the different countries, different different environments, different circuit layouts. You know, and and that those circuits suiting different cars or different drivers, so it mixes up the order a little bit. So that's my worry. But you know, I'll be just pleased to have some racing back. Quite frankly, yeah. No, there, there's a. Uh... There's certainly no argument there. You know, missing the real thing is, uh, I think, a fairly universal. And to that end, it's been fascinating to watch because IndyCar has talked about how it's going to finish its season at uh, St. Pete in Florida in October, um, <clears throat> October 25th in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, in the last few years, St. Petersburg, Florida has been the season opener. So, uh, this is, it's really fascinating to see how IndyCar is moving versus Formula One versus everything else. So, right now, IndyCar plans on racing June 6th uh, at Texas Motor Speedway, and then going to Road America uh, June 21st, uh, and then on from there, they looks like they're going to try to get 15 races in, um, if I'm counting right. Well, that'd be... That'd be great. I mean, any any form of racing in any country, in any type of vehicle at this point, I'll watch. Although I won't steep to, stoop to watching the esports races, I have to say. I, I'm, I'm not that, uh, uh, you know, committed. But, um, but yeah, it, it'll, it'll be great with uh, IndyCar back. So they're running the, the visors. Are they actually going to run that this year? You know, I honestly don't know. I They've been testing it, so I would assume so, yes. Um, but I, I can't say for sure because I've been I've been busy with uh, some things of my own, but we'll get to that later. Because <laughs> that looks pretty sweet. It looks way better than the flip flop, the Halo in F one. I think. Ah well, so I tend to agree. You know, Formula One, uh, to their credit, they are the pioneers at this. So they had to start with nothing, and IndyCar got to learn from Formula One's mistakes to a certain extent. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, this is a moving document before before all sports is eSport. We live in pods that are pandemic-free, and everything we do uh, in terms of interaction is virtual. And, uh, and then we become batteries for uh, the big computer network, and it turns out The Matrix was a documentary, not a sci-fi movie. So <laughs> let's just... Let's just enjoy these last days of real life while we can. Um, yo, go ahead. So just a couple more interesting pieces of F1 news. I thought it was, uh, um, you know, so they've announced that they'll freeze the rules, um, the introduction of the new rules for one season. So yeah. these cars will be run for 20 and also 21. And, of course, that makes McLaren's life tricky because they are switching engine provider between the seasons, so they'll have to juggle that. Um, and then the salary cap is a big one. They keep talking about, you know, introducing that and then reducing it to help out the teams who seem to be, you know, all, all suffering under the lack of racing and sponsorship payouts and so on and so forth. So that's going to be, you know, I think it's a big one because if we still see Mercedes dominant this year or, you know, able to win, then we've got another two, you know, effectively two years of that because the cars won't change for next season. That's going to be controversial. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, and I found it very fascinating that they froze the technical regs for a year and they're not implementing in 21, but in 22, but they did not freeze the cost regs. And 
I understand that cost was becoming more and more of an urgent issue, but it does seem like really one goes with the other. And so to have this kind of like, yes, we're going to limit costs in these interesting ways, but no, not, but we're going to freeze the regs, I think is going to make the 2021 year less compelling inherently. And uh, I very much hope that Formula One proves us wrong, but they're they're kind of stacking the deck against themselves by doing it that way. There are some quite interesting ideas. I, I don't know if they'll actually get implemented, but whereby teams that finish lower down the order will have the potential to spend more money on things like uh, wind tunnel testing than the teams that finish higher up the order. In the idea that you can sort of eventually balance it out by using you know additional aero time so i'm curious if that'll that certainly is a lot more interesting idea than the than the, the mass balancing formula you know the weight penalty formula that some touring car championships run so the more you win the more mass you then have to carry for the subsequent races until you're so slow because you're burdened by like 100 kilos that you're, you're at the other end of the grid yeah. So this one sounds like a slightly more elegant solution, but I'm not entirely convinced if you're really struggling to design and engineer a really good car that, you know, a couple more hours in the wind tunnel is really going to get you up to the sharp end of the grid. Well, but it's, and, I mean, usually the reason why you're towards the back is because your budget's smaller in the first place. That's right. what is really bizarre to me about that institution, right? I mean, the, am I missing something? I mean, where would the money come from to pay for the wind tunnel well, testing? Yeah, I don't know if you get additional prize money, but that also seems slightly odd, doesn't it? Because uh, the prize money normally is worked out based on on where you finish in the championship. So exactly, um, yeah, it's. I agree with you. I mean, if you're struggling to raise enough money to go racing, it's hard to know where you'd find that extra five, ten million that you are now allowed to spend. But uh, we'll see how it works out. I mean. I, I have to say, you know, the team that finished last last year, Williams, I've just watched the, the Drive to Survive episode where they had the insight into Williams. And it really is as bad. It does seem to be as bad as we all feared looking at that one episode where Claire Williams just seems to be absolutely clueless. Honestly, oh, she dear. Not. Yeah, you should check it out. I know you're a Claire Williams fan. Um, but, yeah, she doesn't seem well equipped to be running that team. But... Paddy Lowe also doesn't come across very well. Paddy, Paddy well. looks like a scared, a scared little boy who somehow <laughs> found himself as technical chief of Williams. It's bizarre. Honestly, it's really shocking. I, I couldn't quite believe it. I, it was really compelling television. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, one of the all-time great F1 teams, and it's a shambles, really shambles. Yeah, man. And they're still... Oh, yeah. Okay, let's... Yes, because I'll get sad very fast. Um... I do want to touch on one other bit of news, non-Formula One, um, and then we'll go on to our main topic. Um, but uh, Corvette, the C8R, the brand new mid-engine Corvette race car, is not going to be in Formula One. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's also true, but they're not going to be <laughs> shock. <laughs> but they're not going to be at the 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, this September. They're uh, they're pulling out. And it's not exactly clear why. But the other thing that's fascinating is Porsche is also dialing back. So uh, Le Mans is in this interesting place as well. The root cause of Corvette seems to be that the car just isn't up to speed just yet. And they want to work on it and develop it some more before they go to Le Mans. Pratt and Miller have done a a rear-engined race car and it's just not cutting the mustard. Is that basically the story? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, kind of, sort of. That's the. I mean, if you if you want to just slice it down to its absolute core, I'd say that's what it is. Well, I mean, the whole rear engine thing was about getting the Corvette finally on the same level as its more illustrious European competitors, right? So, if you then go and get your, you know, get a spanking <laughs> in a competitive race, it sort of blows that that away, doesn't it? So, I, I would agree. I'd wait until I was ready to be competitive. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's pretty shrewd move. But it's fascinating to me that this is tied in with the fact that Porsche is always also cutting back because obviously Porsche and Le Mans is pretty synonymous, and it seems to be that there is kind of an undercurrent of, you know, 
if, is this the right time to spend money at Lamar, given just the general industry? I mean, you know, obviously, first and foremost is the health of the world, but there's also the economy of the world. And how many people are going to be interested in buying cars, especially luxury products like Porsches? And uh, to a certain extent, you know, the Corvette is a luxury product in, in its own right. So I, there is this, well, are we spending money in a, in a smart way uh, by going to Le Mans and spending millions when vehicle sales are going to be dreadful compared to last year? Well, I mean, there was certainly a huge period of retrenchment in 2008, right? You had the likes of Honda and Toyota and BMW all all sacrificing their racing campaigns to uh, invest in the in the core business. I'm sure we'll see some of that again as manufacturers. I mean, what did Ford lose over two billion in, in quarter one this year? So there's going to have to be some reevaluation of where your priorities are when you're not uh, selling product. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, the, the rules at Le Mans seem to be always so controversial, don't they? I mean, haven't Porsche, aren't Porsche on the verge or have they entered Formula E? I forget. But a number of... Yeah, oh yeah, moved. no, Porsche has, yes. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the industry is facing a period where they're heavy investment in electric vehicles, in autonomous vehicles, uh, and, and, and want to pivot the image of the brand, even if you're a sports car uh, manufacturer, to a more futuristic, forward-thinking uh environmentally friendly image right so does does running a ICE vehicle around Le Mans for 24 hours necessarily still present that I'm not so sure I think Le Mans needs to think about how to mix up their categories and and maybe entice companies like Porsche and GM back yeah 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 have to agree okay well I think we've uh, covered enough news here and uh, time to get to our main topic, which unfortunately this time around is a very sad uh, topic, but I think that there's a lot of happiness we can glean from it, and that is the passing of Sir Sterling Moss. And as the resident Brit, I think it is absolutely uh, uh, your uh, right to take it away and uh, take the lead here. All right. Thanks, Robin. Um, so I've got a wonderful book in front of me. It is the Sterling Moss authorized biography by a guy called Robert Edwards. And so to paint a picture of Sterling, if you never heard of him, we have a man, it's a black and white photograph of a man sitting in a British racing green van wall, drinking a cup of tea and not out of a mug. No, it's a teacup with a saucer and a spoon. Yeah, I've seen that photo before. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Sterling. He was an absolute legend of the sport, never won the world championship, but was runner-up four times, third three times, uh, considered for a while after Fangio retired as the, you know, the greatest uh, of his generation. Uh, race career in Formula One was ended, unfortunately, early when he crashed at Goodwood. Um, but he won, and this is what and surprised was, me. That was, a, was, that, was that a non-championship race or an F2? What was, what was that crash? It, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't an F1 race. I mean, he. I mean, that's. I. I will find out that answer to your question because I have a great uh, little piece on that. But the thing is, this, these are some of the stats I love about Sterling. So he raced everything, right? So this is the era when F1 drivers raced in touring cars, sports cars, F2 cars, and so he won 212 of the 529 races that he entered. Uh, in his main competitive career and and I was reading that over a hundred of those races he retired through no fault of his own through a mechanical DNF so I mean that's incredible so essentially he won more than half the races he entered yeah uh, if you if you take those out and so you know amazing amazing performance he was uh there's a yeah there's a great sequence of images of him actually crashing which is a little sad let's see uh let's see if I can answer that question uh, I think it was an F2 race, I believe. I, so it was a fairly innocuous, a little bit like the one that claimed uh, Jimmy Clark's life, you know, went mm -hmm. off and did race something else for a weekend and it cost him. He was actually saying that uh, he tried to come back too early and wasn't comfortable when he drove a car and he, he thinks he should have left it, you know, maybe a little bit longer to recover fully and he might have resumed his career. 
But interestingly enough, and this is what I didn't know when I started, you know, uh, just reading a little bit more about him. Uh, he actually had quite a career in the 70s, 80s. Uh, he didn't actually retire uh, until 1981, officially. And then even then he raced historics through to a 2011. Quite incredible. So, yeah, up into 81, he was still hammering cars around places like Goodwood and the Mall. Um, and giving it his all. So he raced uh, for Mercedes-Benz, Maserati, Van Wall, Cooper, Lotus, and HWM. So he had 66 starts in F1, 16 wins. Um, and uh, But I think one of his greatest victories, and I actually have a, a lovely framed picture on the wall of my office, was of him winning the, the Mille Miglia. Ah, uh, okay. So I was wondering if you were going to go Mille Miglia or the British Grand Prix. Uh, it was 1955 both both that, times. Yep, and that was in a 300 SLR Mercedes-Benz. He had a co-driver, a journalist called Dennis Jenkinson, and uh, and it was an astonishing, astonishing victory. And but yeah, 55. You're right. He won in the W196 when he was racing alongside Fangio, and uh, you know he still joked that he he thinks that Fangio let him win that day <laughs> in his yep. home Grand Prix. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, he lost the championship in 1958 by one point. He had four wins to Mike Hawthorne's one. And uh, Hawthorne, at the final race of the season, the Portuguese Grand Prix, was actually going to be chucked out of the race uh, because he reversed down the track. And Moss actually defended him to the stewards, allowed Hawthorne to keep his, uh, keep his points and therefore take the championship away from him. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a famous story and a sad story in a lot of ways since we know his future, um, you know, in hindsight. But it, 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 does, it shows two things. It shows the kind of man Sterling Moss was and also the era that he raced in, both of them are romanticized, but also both of them were quite romantic. It was just a completely different time to race and showed a lot of gentlemanly uh, and compassion and like the purity of the sport uh, was uh, much more alive and obvious back then. And it is, you have to put it in context, but you also have to really cherish those moments. And the fact that Moss was as strong of a driver as he was and yet didn't win a championship almost, to a certain extent, adds to his allure because he, everyone feels that he should have won several. And in fact, the year that he was going, uh, the, you know, I th 1962, I hope I'm remembering correctly, when he had the crash at Goodwood, he was going to be driving a Ferrari. And the chances of four, of championships coming his way were very high. And there probably would have been more than one, maybe a few. And so, but we don't know. We don't know what history would have come. We don't know how competitive the Ferrari would have been. And because of that, there's more of this mystique and allure that goes around Sterling. But... I think the fact that he did continue to compete and compete so very well and just maintained such a high level of that British gentleman persona that you could you can't do anything but respect him. Yeah, I mean, the moniker that's given to him is, is the greatest driver never to have won the world championship. Um, you know, and there's probably a few people, a few names you could throw out there to debate people like Gilles Villeneuve, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, he's got to be, he's got to be up there. Um, I was trying to imagine, you know, he was so synonymous with motor racing that even, even long after he'd retired, you know, he basically personified what it was to be a racing driver in the UK. And I was imagining, you know, who would be the equivalent in the US. And the name I came up with was Mario Andretti. I yeah. think he's, you know, a slightly earlier era, slightly different personality, but both absolutely had petrol running through their veins, right? Just loved racing cars of any description. <laughs> yeah, no, Andretti is absolutely, um, absolutely the example. If you want to go, um, oh God, uh, pure Americana, and now I'm forgetting his name. This happens to me all the time. 
brain injuries. Uh, 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 there's another there's another name that uh, would also fit, and I'll think of it maybe 20 minutes after we're done recording this. Um, you thinking of Unser? No, 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 not the Unser's, because uh, there's okay. Bobby and Al Unser Sr. No, yeah. he was four-time IndyCar, Indy 500 champion. He's a team owner now. He is a Texan, rough, gruff guy, but he's a oh, fantastic I know who you driver. Mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the fact that I can't think of his name is pathetic. Uh, but uh, I'm going to look it up now that we're going through this. Um, but, I mean, Mario, Mario, but, you know, Formula One success, IndyCar success... Um, you know, raced into you know pretty ripe old age, didn't he? Um, AJ Foyt, AJ Foyt. Foyt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but I agree with you. I think Mario Andretti is the best example. Foyt would be the pure American example because obviously Mario uh, was born in Italy uh, and then moved to the U.S. That doesn't make him any less American, and in fact, it makes him more American almost because we are a country of immigrants. But uh, but uh, you know, Foyt is you know similar. Race multiple disciplines was fast everywhere he went. But I think that Mario has is the best example because he was also that ambassador, that example, that uh, you know celebrity status that just commanded your respect in a lot of different dis- disciplines. Well, it's when you become so well-known that you transcend your sport, right? And people just associate you as the default race driver. So, you know, I think Moss was was that for sure, and and Andretti is in the U.S. If you ask the average person here to name a racing driver, I bet quite a lot of money it might be Andretti. You're 100% correct. You're 100% correct, yeah. So there's there's some lovely footage out there. I found a great... Uh, YouTube clip of because uh, Sterling remained a Mercedes-Benz ambassador late into his life. He was kept very busy doing a lot of promotional work, you know, right up to, you know, I think he became ill a couple of years ago after traveling to Singapore, which restricted some of his, his work. But, he, you know, into his 80s, he was still very active. And uh, there's a lovely video of him and, and uh, Hamilton at Monza. In, uh, it was oh, recorded in 15. I watched but, that. Yeah, that was And they're going on the old banking at Monza, you know, and you can see Hamilton's just, oh, he's loving the car. He was in a W196, but, you know, he couldn't believe how much the, the car's moving around and how bumpy the... Uh, you know, the banking is, and still it's like, yeah, that's how it was. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I used to do that, I think is one of the quotes from the video. Well, uh, th- there was this wonderful, wonderful hour-long documentary that I found that was hosted by Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh, and Patrick Stewart uh, interacted with uh, Sterling Moss in a few different capacities, went to Italy with him, ran parts of the Mila Milia. Uh, drove some cars. I think he was in a van wall, in fact. Um, and it's a really lovely documentary. And that is a link I shared on the Fun With Cars Facebook page, and I will make it part of the show notes here as well. Um, there is one um, There is one uh, sour patch that I wanted to get your impression of, which was that, you know, Sterling Moss, he got his start with Jaguar uh, sports cars in the early 50s and then got connected with Mercedes in the mid-50s. That was Formula One, but that was also the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is, it was in Mercedes, and it was the crash that killed over 80 people Hmm. um, in the Mercedes. And um, Sterling Moss was part of that team. He was obviously not part of the wrecked car, but... I'm really curious to get your opinion because Sterling Moss, Mercedes pulled out. They withdrew from the race, the 24-hours race, and Sterling disagreed with that decision. And I'm curious of your opinion of that. Well, I think I think it's very hard in 2020 to reconcile, you know, going to a motor race and 80 people losing their lives. Uh, uh, but, you know, if you think back into the context of 1955, you know, only 10 years after World War Two, it's much easier to understand, I think, that there was a... I mean, it's... 
that whole period, I mean, you know, in the 60s, the fact that racing drivers were losing their lives almost, you know, every third Grand Prix, it's hard to fathom these days that that could be allowed to continue. It's true. So I can, I kind of understand a little bit where he's coming from. I mean, there is some, there is footage of the crash. It's, it's extraordinary, honestly. I mean, oh, it's horrific. It's, it's, it's a wonder that the race did continue and that, that anyone was allowed to win it. Uh, so, um, you know, and it wasn't Mercedes' fault. They were completely innocent. Uh, it was a very unfortunate set of circumstances where I think it was Pierre Levey's car got launched by by hitting a slowing Healy that was entering the pits, if I recall that correctly. And so, you know, it was just one of those racing incidents, right, with a pretty woeful pit lane entry situation back in the day. Um, and, you know, inadequate barriers and, and, and marshalling equipment. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I can, I can understand why he might, uh, the racer in him might want to continue when everyone else is continuing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I think Mercedes probably made the right decision. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also from the position of a racing driver, especially in that era, there is that sense of, well, what happened happened, but we're still here. We still have the potential to do well. But it was clearly traumatic. I mean, it's it's gone down as history. It is the worst single deadliest event in motorsports history. Uh, Mercedes pulled out of sports car racing altogether, ultimately, uh, as a result of that. And... So it was obviously a very traumatic moment. And uh, I think that it also speaks to the character of Sterling Moss, where he was a profound English gentleman, but he was also a to-the-marrow to race car driver that if he had the opportunity to win, by God, he wanted to take it. And I think that you have to consider both aspects of that character and that's made him, that's what made him as successful as he was. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, the other, the other thing that uh, amused me, there was a really good interview uh, on the F1 website by Will, Will Buxton that uh, um, he interviewed Moss twice and his experiences of interviewing him were quite amusing. Uh, so in London, if you want to become a taxi driver, you have to take something called the knowledge. Um, and Moss's home was part of the test. You had to know where Sterling Moss's house was. So you, you didn't have to know the address. You just said, take me to Sterling's house and the taxi driver would be able to take you there. And, uh, you know, the house was just uh, completely chock full of motor racing memorabilia. And, you know, one thing that stood out for Buxton was was there was a uh, pencil drawing of Senna that was dedicated and autographed by Ayrton and had been given to Sterling. So there you go. You've got a guy who, you know, epitomized racing in the 80s, early 90s, still honoring, you know, uh, a man that raced more than 30 years prior, which I think, you know, shows the, the respect that he, you know, he was held within the sport. And he, he still had all scrapbooks filled with photographs, uh, cuttings of his racing performance. Uh, he kept detailed diaries on race weekends of what he had for breakfast, what the car tire pressures were. <laughs> and he still had them, you know, stuck stuck away in his bookshelves. So that's a really good, uh, a really good interview. And then I found another one uh, more recently in motorsport where uh, Sterling to keep his income healthy, actually had a number of properties in London that he was renting out. And he, <laughs> if one of his tenants had an issue with the plumbing or whatever, he would go and try and fix it himself before he called out a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> so he was quite the character. Sterling, really. the toilet's plugged up again. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating. I, I, based on what you're describing about the Will Bucks, I, I really think you would get a lot uh, you'd get a lot out of the Patrick Stewart uh, a show that was put on. It was it was really wonderful to watch for me, and I think that you have to look at uh, what Sterling managed to do in the era that he managed to do it, and 
the consistency in which he was able to deliver his racing performance and his demeanor, I think, is uh, quite impressive. And also, he was the classic playboy driver in many ways because he chased a lot of girls and he was a judge in beauty contests and things of that <laughs> nature as well. So he really did live uh, this like larger than life uh, stereotypical race car driver persona as well. And you, you to a certain extent, you have to admire that. Absolutely. He uh, is quite the character. I, I went to Silverstone uh, for the British Grand Prix many years in a row in the 90s and uh, he used to be on the, the local Radio Silverstone providing a little bit of colour to the commentary and and you know it, his viewpoints and I mean he was completely on point when it came to you know matters of racing but just the things he would highlight <laughs> used to amuse me and it was like from a different era but you know just uh, just an extraordinary chap really and um, I mean I liked going back to the the Monza driving with uh, with Lewis, you know, there he was, still wearing goggles and an op- you know open face crash helmet, and his probably his original overalls from like sixty two. Yeah, he hadn't modernised in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, just uh, stuck in a time warp, but fascinating. Yeah, because why bother? Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to have to start wrapping this up because I have finished my glass of wine. Oh, um, terrible. Yeah, exactly right. But uh, I do, I do want to, I do want to uh, say that I always held Sterling Moss in extremely high regard. You know, I think that we can say that his entire racing life was lived to a very high degree of success and of respect, and I think that he lived. A very full and very wonderful life, and uh, I couldn't be happier for that fact. So, uh, definitely three cheers to Sterling Moss. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are going to have to close out the show, uh, the podcast here. We have have done a second one. We are going to try to do a third in the not too distant future I don't know whether it will be about a race or not (laughs) but it does seem like there will be plenty to talk about soon enough one way or the other Uh, so we'll keep in touch uh, in terms of that stuff Um, but Chris I think you wanted to talk about um, a race or two that you dug through the archives and a race or two that really stood out for you that you wanted to mention yeah, there's been opportunities to uh, to watch full uh, Grand Prix from from yesteryear, if you like. Um, F1's been making them available. Um, the first ever Grand Prix I watched was of 1986, when Mansell spectacularly failed to win the World Championship with a puncture uh, in Adelaide. And uh, I watched the whole Grand Prix, um, and it was quite extraordinary, actually, because I really didn't remember it that well. I wasn't very old at the time when I first saw it, so... Uh, uh, that is that is well worth that's well worth a look. Um, I've watched a couple of races in the nineties. Monaco in ninety six is an extraordinary race. I won't spoil it for you if you don't know how it, how it goes, but you won't be able to predict the winner at the start of the Grand Prix. I can assure you of that. Similarly, the the ninety nine German Grand Prix is also uh, pretty entertaining. Was that and Hockenheim or that was the new uh, Nurburgring? That was Nurburgring. Okay. Yeah, that, that's also one you, you're going to struggle to guess who might win that one. And then um, the the last one I watched uh, recently was the 08 British Grand Prix at Silverstone, uh, where if you like watching Ferraris go around in circles, um, you know, <laughs> uh, spinning is quite entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been doing none of that. In fact, because work has been shockingly busy, but also because, well, and this is part of work, I've been racing myself. Um, I set up, I I reset up my video game racing rig and bought a subscription to iRacing and have been racing professional drivers in the Roush Performance iRacing series. And I've been writing a lot of articles for it for AutoWeek.com. I'm going to uh, put a link in the show notes of my most recent uh, article about it 
it's been fascinating. It's been entertaining. Simu, simu racing is very real in terms of the frustrations you can feel when the car isn't doing what you want it to do. And it's also extremely real when it comes to wanting to blame the equipment for your woes. And uh, that is definitely true for me. My steering wheel is 14 years old. My steering wheel is older than iRacing itself. <laughs> and I am I am definitely contributing part of my lack of success to that. Um, and uh, anyway, it's been fascinating. It's been entertaining. I've been racing not Formula One guys, but I've been racing sports car professionals. Some of them are Daytona prototype drivers. A lot of them are um, in GT class doing a lot of uh, driving there. And uh, it's been fun, but it's been aggravating, but it's been entertaining to uh, it's been entertaining to write about and i think a few people have liked reading it too at least i hope so um so uh check that out um as well and there'll be links to my latest story will have links to other stories and you could read all about it there so you don't foresee a, a new career as a as an eye racing expert then oh no i do i definitely do see that career i just don't know who is ever going to hire me <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's the other part I'm working at. And I'm not done. I actually have more races coming. Um, so it's, it's not over. It, it, okay. I've, I've, built, I've built a bit of a reputation that I'm trying to break. But I've also I've built this reputation among the drivers as writing great articles. But, <laughs> but not the racing. That's the part that needs practice, I suppose. But. And there's been true. There's been a lot of rust to shake off in addition to the fact that my equipment sucks. But... And do you lock Harrison out of the room when you're racing? Is that how it works? Or, or? No, I mean, the first time round, I mean, Harrison was coming in and, like, shifting for me, quote-unquote. <laughs> yeah, there, was, there were definitely some moments. And, uh, yeah, so there was, there's there's plenty, you know, every, every good professional driver has a number of excuses of why things aren't going well, and I am 100% mm -hmm. a pro there. I am... Absolutely, absolutely there. But it's it's been a lot of fun, and I will um, I will definitely tell more people about it on funwithcars.com or on the Facebook page. Excuse me, Fun with Cars Facebook page. But uh, yeah. Anyway, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com as always i can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our facebook page at facebook.com slash fw cars chris another episode and uh still haven't seen you but one day we've got a bottle of gin to still drink this summer now. oh yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm robin warner goodbye <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs>